following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this morning we are in this series on Advent that we started last week. We're doing four weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, just in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, a series called The Coming King, and we're looking at Matthew's telling of the Christmas story, the, the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, and some of the events following on from the birth of Jesus. Uh, last week, we looked at the wonderful genealogy in Matthew's gospel, that wonderfully long list of names there at the beginning, and how it traces the royal lineage down to Jesus and reveals him as the coming king, as Israel's king, as the world's king. And today, we pick up the story itself the Christmas story, the nativity story in Matthew chapter 1. But before we get there, I want to set this up this morning with a video, uh, a scene to get us uh, thinking and focused on some of the issues that arise in this particular uh, passage, in this particular chapter. So the scene is from a TV series called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. And uh, this is a scene in which people are pitching ideas and talking about ideas for a Christmas TV show. So have a look at this. So there you go. Bit of biblical scholarship there for you from Hollywood. There's not actually a website called Virgin Birth Debunked, just in case you're wondering. .org, it doesn't actually exist. But there are plenty of websites out there that question the virgin birth. Plenty of websites that uh, write it off as completely biologically, historically implausible, uh, which is understandable. In fact, both ends of Jesus' life, really, the virgin birth and his resurrection, are pretty scientifically questionable. And these are things that Christians have often borne the brunt of mockery and ridicule over for suggesting that Jesus' birth was some sort of immaculate conception. And the, the issue, the specific issue that that uh, clip raises is the prophecy of Isaiah and the wording that he uses. And we'll look at that a little bit because it comes up in this chapter. But as Matthew describes the birth of Jesus, as he describes the virgin birth, he doesn't really set forth a whole lot of arguments for it. He doesn't get all self-defensive and try and explain it and give evidence for it. He just simply sets it forth as historical reality. And what he does really is he invites us, Matthew invites us, to consider the virgin birth of Jesus from one particular perspective, and it's the perspective of Joseph. And that's where his story uh, comes from. That's the perspective it takes. So let's read these few verses together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So... For Joseph, this, this young guy, probably a reasonably young guy, Joseph, really for him, the virgin birth is not a theological doctrine. It's not an abstract philosophy. It's a personal problem. It's a very personal crisis. 
for Joseph. And that's how he experiences this whole reality because he is engaged or betrothed to a young girl, Mary, who was probably just a teenager at the time. Uh, engagements uh, in Jewish culture of the time were much more binding. So even just to get engaged, you had to go through a ceremony with witnesses. And then to break off an engagement, you had to get a divorce, which required another type of ceremony. So it wasn't quite like today. You just give back the ring. Uh, it was quite a serious thing, which is why the text says that he had in mind to divorce her quietly, because it would have taken a divorce, even though they were only engaged. So sometime during this engagement period, which probably lasted about a year, Mary comes to Joseph and gives him the news that she's pregnant. And she gives him this whole story about the angel and the Holy Spirit and God calling her blessed, all of these things, which would have been very, very hard for Joseph to comprehend. I mean, he knows now that Mary's pregnant. He knows that he's not the father. She's got a whole story about an angel and he's really not too sure what's going on. So you can imagine what he would have felt, the, fe the anger that he must have felt, right? The feelings of confusion, of betrayal, of brokenness that his fiance, for all he knows, has been unfaithful to him. And here's his response, which is quite interesting. We're told that Joseph was a righteous man or that he followed the law, but that he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace in verse 19. Now, usually we assume that it was because Joseph was a righteous man that he didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace and therefore divorced her quietly. So we sort of equate being a righteous man with being compassionate and being kind and being merciful, which Joseph was. But that's not really what the word righteous means, is it? The word righteous, which the NIV brings out here, is that Joseph was faithful to the law. To be righteous was to keep the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was very clear about what to do in this kind of circumstance when a woman came to be married and was found not to be a virgin. Deuteronomy 22 is pretty specific, that she is to be subjected to public stoning, death by stoning. Now, in the Roman government, they didn't let the Jews get away with that, that form of just execution in that manner. But what it would have meant probably is a very public, very humiliating divorce trial for Mary, that Joseph would have subjected her to. And that would have been the righteous thing to do. That would have meant following the law. That would have been faithful to humiliate Mary, to divorce Mary, and to allow her to be completely shamed within the Jewish community. But Joseph doesn't do that. Instead, he plans to divorce her quietly. So it's a contrast. It's not because Joseph was a righteous man that he planned to divorce her quietly. It's in spite of being a righteous man that Joseph planned to divorce her quietly. And it tells us something, doesn't it, about Joseph's character, that he was faithful to the law, that he was an obedient Jew, that he took the law seriously, and yet he also saw the spirit of the law, that God loves mercy and not sacrifice, and that God wants us to treat one another with love, with respect, with dignity. And even in his confused and betrayed state, Joseph had compassion on Mary. For, for all he knew, she'd been unfaithful to him, and yet he looked beyond the letter of the law and reached out and showed incredible compassion and kindness to her with this plan to just allow a, a quiet divorce that would allow her to slip away with the minimum amount of social shame and stigma. Really speaks to the character of Joseph, I think. 
So Joseph's got this plan in mind, but before he gets to action that, he has his own angelic visit. An angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, confirms what the angel has already said to Mary. And then the angel instructs Joseph to give Jesus his name, the name Jesus, or or the Jewish Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. And so having given him these instructions, Matthew then, in verse 22, just has a little break in his story, a little break in the narrative, and he gives us an Old Testament quotation. It's one of several quotations that he's going to give us through the birth narrative of Jesus to add a little bit of depth and insight into who Jesus was. In verse 22, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Now, that quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 7, and it's worth just looking back here in the original context because it's not quite as straightforward as it first appears. Back in Isaiah 7, Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah at the time. And the king of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, was about to be attacked by the northern kingdom of Israel in alliance with the nation of Aram. These kings were rallying their troops, about to attack Judah. And God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz, king of Judah, in order to encourage him and tell him, you're going to be victorious. Don't worry about these nations that are about to invade you. You're going to come out okay. These nations are going to be laid waste. And Isaiah delivers this news to King Ahaz. And he even invites King Ahaz to ask him for a sign that this is going to be the case, that God will protect Judah. But King Ahaz resists that he refuses to ask for a sign he says i don't want to put the lord to the test and so god through isaiah says this to him in verse 13 of isaiah uh, Isaiah 7 then isaiah said here now you house of david is it not enough to try the patience of humans will you try the patience of god also therefore the lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him emmanuel now The tricky thing with this verse, as we heard in the clip, is that the Hebrew word for virgin is the word alma. And that word doesn't specifically mean virgin. It's a more generic term. It just means a young woman of marriable age. She could be a virgin. She may not be. It's it's quite a broad and general term. There was a particular word for virgin in the Hebrew vernacular, the word Bethula, that Isaiah could have used, and he didn't. Instead, he uses this general term, Alma. And so people who want to question the virgin birth jump on this. Here it is, they say, this is the virgin birth debunked. You see, Isaiah never even prophesied it, never even said it was going to be a virgin birth. He just said it was going to be a young woman would give birth, and that's that. But I think there is a good reason why Isaiah uses this word that's slightly more broad. Because in his own context, Isaiah wasn't talking about Mary. That might come as a bit of a shock to you. But Isaiah wasn't primarily talking about the mother of Jesus eight centuries later. He was talking about events in his own day, in his own time. You can tell that if you keep reading because he says, before this boy is even old enough to know right from wrong, these nations that are attacking you are going to be laid waste. He's talking about the imminent threat to Judah and a child who is going to be born of a woman who will be a sign to King Ahaz that he's going to be victorious in this very near battle. And the woman that most likely Isaiah is talking about is his own wife. You get to the next chapter and his wife has a baby. 
So Isaiah, in the first instance, has got his eye on that situation. That's the prophecy. It concerns events in the immediate future of Isaiah's day. His own son and his own wife, who wouldn't have been a virgin, obviously, when she conceived and gave birth to this son. This would have happened in the course of normal marriage, normal childbirth. That's the prophecy that is primarily in view in Isaiah 7. Let me put it this way. If Matthew, if the Gospel of Matthew had never been written, we would never assume that Isaiah 7 meant anything other than events in Isaiah's own day. We would never have assumed that this was a reference to the Messiah, would we? What else is in that passage to suggest it? It's concerned with its own immediate time. Now, having said all that, by the time we get to Matthew, in the unfolding of the biblical story, it is now clear that there's more going on in that prophecy than meets the eye. That writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, somehow Matthew knew to reach back to that prophecy and apply it to Jesus. I can only put that down to the, the guidance of the Spirit, that Matthew made that connection, but he did. And he looks back and he says, that child that Isaiah talked about, ultimately, he's talking about Jesus. And so the woman then, the virgin, or the, the marriable woman that Isaiah is speaking about, was not only his own wife, but also Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is what we call a double fulfillment. We talked about it last week with the, God's prophecy about David's son. It was Solomon and yet more than Solomon. It's the same thing here. Isaiah is talking about his own son and yet more than his own son. He's talking about this child who would be born eight centuries later, Jesus. So there's a double fulfillment here where Isaiah is speaking about his own wife conceiving and giving birth. And then it's a prophecy, Isaiah probably wasn't even aware of this, but a prophecy that regarded a much more distant event that Mary would have this immaculate conception and give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. He is talking about both things at once. And because he's talking about both events, God wanted to give him a word that was broad enough to encapsulate both circumstances. Alma is the perfect word. <coughs> Excuse me. If he'd used the word Bethula, it would have been appropriate to Mary, but not to Isaiah's wife. It wouldn't have had any relevance to his own situation, or it would have been incorrect. So Alma is, in fact, the best word to use if you believe that there's a double fulfillment of this prophecy. It's relevant to Isaiah's day, and it's relevant to Jesus as well. Does that make sense? I think that's what's happening in Isaiah 7, a double fulfillment prophecy, and that's why that word is used. Now, some people say, well, why is this even important? Why do we even care about the virgin birth? Isn't it just a little bit of an antiquated idea uh, one quite popular Christian author came out a few years ago and said he just doesn't think it matters, the virgin birth. That really, if it's found to be implausible, you know, uncredible, then it's not a big deal. We should just discard it and our belief system still remains perfectly intact. I would suggest that it is really important, the virgin birth, that it's in fact critical for our faith for one really important reason. The virgin birth of Jesus is what allows us to say that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. It really is that event that secures this for us. Because Jesus, on the one hand, is born of Mary, a human mother. And it is that that secures his full humanity, his full participation in our humanity, except without sin. We always need to put that bit on. Our sinless humanity, if you like. But still fully human. 
and yet his conception is divine. This is God himself incarnating himself in the womb of a teenage girl becoming human. He is fully God. Jesus doesn't have a biological father. This is God himself, and Jesus embodies the presence of God for us. That's why we affirm that Jesus is fully man and fully God. It's because of the virgin birth. And that's even more critical when you get to the cross and you get to atonement. Because if Jesus is going to be our all-sufficient Savior, he has to be both fully man and fully God. He must be fully human to identify completely with our sin and take it upon himself. He must be fully God in order to be a sinless and perfect sacrifice acceptable to God. So if you don't think the virgin births are uh, important, let me lay it out for you this way. No virgin birth, no two natures of Jesus, fully God, fully man. No two natures of Jesus, no atonement, no atonement, no salvation. That's basically as clear as I can make it. It's absolutely critical. Without the virgin birth of Jesus, we don't have salvation. We're dead in our sins and transgressions. It really does just come from one to the next. And so I would say we need to really affirm this as an important part of our Christian theology and belief system, that Jesus truly was born of a virgin. And no matter how scientifically and biologically uh, discredited that may be in our modern scientific worldview, this is the testimony of Scripture clearly. This is a miraculous event of God. This has been the confession of the church through the creeds for centuries. We affirm it and declare it because it's essential for our faith and it's essential for our salvation that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, we'll have to recite the creed again one of these days just to actually say that and mean it. Okay, so Jesus experienced this virgin birth. But I want to focus here on the content of that prophecy in Isaiah and what Isaiah said. It's quoted in Matthew in verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Isaiah first said those words, about his own son, uh, clearly his own son was not God with us in the same sense that Jesus was. Uh, when Isaiah made that prophecy about his own son in his own day, it was a symbol of God's presence with his people, that God was going to come and be present with Judah to rescue them, to help them. But when that word, when that title, Emmanuel, is given to Jesus, it means far more. And it's one of the most beautiful and rich titles that we have for Jesus, that he is the very presence of God with us. Every title that Matthew's used so far, Messiah, uh, Savior, the one who saves, Son of David, Son of Abraham, they, all these titles could, in theory, be applied to a human deliverer. But with Emmanuel, there's no chance of that. Emmanuel tells us that Jesus, in a mysterious way, represents the very presence of God with us and among us on earth. This is what we call the incarnation. God become human being. Not just that God took on human skin, not just that he appeared to be human, but if you, know, if you really pull back his shirt, there'd be a big G there. I'm really God, but I'm just dressed in human skin. No, he took on the fullness of our humanity. He really was God with us and among us. Now, in a sense, God has always been Emmanuel, hasn't he? You think back to the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. And he didn't just wind the world up and let it go and let Adam and Eve frolic in the garden and do their thing. God's desire was to be with. And so he walked among them. 
He walked with them in the cool of the day, we read. God wanted to be with His people from the beginning. In the story of Israel, as God led them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, He he journeyed with them. He instructed them to build this huge tent right in the middle of the center of the camp of Israel, and He tabernacled there with them. He inhabited this tent. He was Emmanuel, God with His people, on pilgrimage with them. And then when the more permanent temple was established in Jerusalem, again, God inhabited the temple. He came in the great procession and His glory and His presence filled the temple. And He again was Emmanuel with Israel. But nobody could have imagined that God would go this far. That God would not just dwell in a temple or a tent, but He would come and dwell physically and personally with us in the body of Jesus that God would wade into this world himself, into this sin-infested world, the brokenness of this world, wade into all the muck and mire of it and take our humanity upon himself and fully experience our own human identity. And he does it out of his sheer love for us. He does it because his delight in us is so great. His love for us is so great that he just cannot stand the thought of being apart from us. That he has this beautiful quality of with usness. That God just wants to be with. And that rises to a beautiful crescendo in Jesus of Nazareth, where God truly is with us and among us, journeying with his disciples, walking the dusty roads of Palestine identifying with them, sharing in their weaknesses, empathizing with them. And it's not just something that he did for 33 years, 2,000 years ago. Jesus ascended to heaven and he sent the Spirit so that now he continues to be God with us. He continues to be Emmanuel through the presence of his Holy Spirit, which is the presence of Christ with us in the absence of his physical presence but still just as much. Emmanuel, God is still with us. God is still among us. God is still, Christ is still journeying with us through life. This week we mark the anniversary of the Sandy Hook Elementary shootings, December 14th last year. That awful tragedy, 20 primary school kids killed in in a shooting in the States and six teachers as well. And it was just bizarre, if you remember watching the footage of that on TV, just seeing this awful tragedy in the middle of the Christmas season. You know, in the middle of Advent, you've got this awful juxtaposing. We're supposed to be celebrating life, celebrating the birth of Christ, celebrating hope. And yet you have this awful, gut-wrenching tragedy unfolding. And the question that people ask when things like that happen is, where is God? Where is God at Sandy Hook Elementary School? Where is God in this kind of mess? And the irony, I think, is that the answer to that question is contained within the miracle of Advent. It's contained within the nativity story. The answer to the question, where is God, is he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God with those kids who were killed. He is God with those families who suffered. And continue to suffer. He is God with those teachers. He's God with those parents who waited outside the school, wondering if their kids were dead or alive. He was Emmanuel to them. He's Emmanuel to us, not just when life's humming along, but He's Emmanuel in our pain. He's Emmanuel in our brokenness. 
He's with us in our darkness. For some of you, this is a really tough season. For some of you, you need to know the presence of Emmanuel in the midst of real struggle in your life because Christmas tends to turn up the volume on the pain that you're already feeling. It tends to amplify the struggle. If you're feeling lonely, then Christmas tends to amplify that loneliness. And you may be counting down the days to Christmas, not with a sense of anticipation, but with a sense of let this be over because it's hard. And you just need to know this morning that Jesus is Emmanuel, that wonderful and beautiful, simple truth that he's there with you in your pain and that he's walking beside you. And he, he doesn't offer to fix it. I wish I could say that he did. He doesn't offer you a simple and quick solution to your problems and that it's all going to be better tomorrow. But I think he offers something better. That God gives us the gift of himself in the midst of our pain. Gives us the gift of his own presence, walking with us journeying with us, being present to us, and that he steps into your suffering and feels it and takes it on and knows the weight of it because he has been there and because he has struggled with you and suffered for you. That's what Hebrews means when it says that we have a high priest who can empathize, literally to to suffer with us, to step into our pain and feel its weight. And Jesus does that with you doesn't just feel sorry for you at a distance. If you're suffering, he's in the suffering. He's stepping into it and entering it, feeling the weight of it and carrying you through it, enveloped in his love. That's where Jesus is in relation to you. He's Emmanuel. He's your Emmanuel. And Jesus is Emmanuel whether we feel it or not, whether we know it or not. A few years ago, a book came out which contained the writings of Mother Teresa, some, some unpublished writings private memoirs of Mother Teresa, and a lot of people were shocked because in these writings, she disclosed the fact that for years and years and years, she never felt the presence of God, that she lived largely with a sense of spiritual darkness, couldn't really apprehend, comprehend God's presence with her, just felt like he wasn't there. Let me read you just one quote from from the book. She says, there is such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. I want God with all the powers of my soul, and yet there between us, there is terrible separation. I want to speak, yet nothing comes. I find no words to express the depth of the darkness. In spite of it all, I am his little one. I love him. You would think that if anybody deserved to feel the presence of God, it was Mother Teresa, wouldn't you? If anybody deserved to know the power and the presence of the Spirit in the work of ministry that she was doing, it was her. And yet she says that more or less right through her ministry, the only sense of God's presence she really felt was the sense of sharing in the sufferings of Christ and sharing sharing in his sense of God-forsakenness. That was the darkness that she lived in. But she knew that God was still Emmanuel even in spite of the fact she didn't feel it. God's presence with you doesn't depend on your ability to perceive it. God's presence with you does not depend on your ability to feel it. God's presence with you right now doesn't depend on your emotional state, your physical state, or your mental state. It is an objective and accomplished fact that Christ is Emmanuel with you right now. And there's times 
in my life that I feel a million miles away from God, sometimes for no particular reason. There's times I try to sit down and write a sermon, and I just feel a billion miles away from God. And that's hard, and it does feel dark, and you do feel separated. But I also have to realize that that is my own emotional state talking, and it's not the reality of where God is, that he hasn't gone anywhere. That what I know to be true from the great title Emmanuel given to my Savior is that Jesus is with me, even when I can't feel it, even when I don't know it with my senses, even when I can't grasp it. He's still Emmanuel. And some of you just need to know that this morning because you don't feel it at all. And you wonder if he's there. And you feel like maybe he's finally given up on you. You just need to know. And I mean deeply, below the level of emotions and experiences, to know in the core of your being, Christ is with you. He's present with you. He's Emmanuel. He's with us even when we're sinning. Even when we're walking away from him. Even in the very moment when you're thinking acting and speaking in ways that are utterly selfish and that shove God off into the distance. He's still with you. He's waiting patiently for you. His heart's breaking. He's deeply grieved. But he is still Emmanuel, still the father of the prodigal son, still there, still arms open, still just waiting for you to come back. He's Emmanuel. In spite of your tiredness, in spite of your exhaustion, he's Emmanuel. He's with us. And one day, Jesus is going to return again. And as the Bible gives us this tantalizing glimpse of what that day will be like, we hear a familiar refrain. We hear that again, God is going to be Emmanuel. Let me just read you one verse from Revelation chapter 21 that describes that day, describes that great, uh, that great scene. In Revelation 21, the voice from the throne, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Isn't that great? The final movement of the biblical story is Emmanuel. It's God again coming to be with his people. And this time fully. And finally, with a permanent abiding sense of his presence, just wrapping us up in the completion of his love. So really, from one perspective, the whole Bible is the story of Emmanuel. From God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, to God coming to dwell with us in the new creation, it is the story of God's efforts through history of being Emmanuel and coming to be with his people. And the story rises to a climax with Jesus of Nazareth, the very embodiment of the presence of God on earth. Jesus is the great testimony to who truly God is in his very being. He's not God beyond us, out of reach, unable to be comprehended. He's not God against us, who wants to punish and condemn and judge. He's certainly not God beneath us, who we can manipulate and control. But he is fundamentally God with us. A God who out of his sheer love for us has a relentless desire to be with us and among us. He's shown that to us in Jesus. 
And now he promises that he will never leave us, never forsake us through the presence of his spirit. And I just pray that as we journey through Advent season that you might know deeply that that simple truth, one of the simplest truths in the world, but one of the most profound, that God is with you, that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and he will never abandon you. I pray that you would know that not just as an emotion, not just as a feeling, but as a deep reality that God's never going anywhere. He's never giving up on you, but he is journeying with you and making himself present to you and available to you every day because his mercies are new every morning. That's the God whom Jesus reveals. That's the God whom Jesus represents. He is God Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God with us. Let's pray. God, some of us feel your presence and some of us don't. Some of us feel like you're right here beside us. Some of, you, some of us feel like you're a long, long way away. But God, we just confess that because of what we read in Scripture, we know that you are with us now. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come down to this world. You've come into our neighborhood. You've, you've incarnated yourself among us. And now you are present with us. Lord, help us to know that. Help us to know it, Lord, in the times that we struggle to see it and sense it and apprehend it. Help us to be more aware of your presence. Help us to come back to your word to see it there and to celebrate that reality. Jesus, as we journey through this Christmas season, as we think about the miracle of your birth, we thank you for what that means to us, your presence with us, secured. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.